0: Hey, I'm Pastor Dave. Welcome to the Lighthouse. We hope the Lord speaks to you today by His Word. God bless As always, I'm going to introduce my sermon and greet you the way I always have, which is, good morning, Lighthouse Church family. Good morning. So it's my pleasure once again to have been given the opportunity to speak before you all. Uh, And for those in attendance this morning, you can see from the vacant seat up here that Pastor Dave usually sits in, uh, this weekend, he is trading in his role as lead pastor, and he's taking on a new hat, and he's wearing the hat of first-time grandfather. Come on. Hallelujah. What a blessing. So it is with great joy, and it is my blessing, uh, to, to introduce and welcome the Spitzinski family. They are introducing a new baby girl, a daughter, and I just found out the name, I think, late last night or early this morning, Ophelia Spidzinski. What a beautiful name. Miracle, of course. Of course, <laughs> miracle. Um, so as such, uh, three weeks ago, um, I was told by Pastor Dave that, that Alicia's due date uh, was coming up very, very shortly. Um, and so at, at any moment, she could go into labor. Uh, and, and he told me to just, I'm, I'm on call. I'm on standby the moment that I get that text. You're coming up and you're, you're going to share, uh, share a message with us. Uh, and so it was yesterday that I, I got that text uh, that, that I would be sharing a word, which in a, I was very excited. What a blessing to be able to speak, but in a much more momentous way, it meant that our lead pastor is now officially a grandfather and his wife, Julie, a grandmother, uh, as well as Jacqueline. And, and if you see Rochelle uh, after the service, make sure you uh, congratulate her on being a first-time aunt and Oma, on being a first-time great-grandmother. Wow. Four? Okay. <laughs> so as we take this time this morning to celebrate new life and the gift of new life from God, I know that our church has seen a number of new babies uh, join our, our congregation in the past year or two. and. And it is my understanding that I am set to be an uncle for the first time this fall. And so join me in congratulating my brother and sister-in-law, Nathan and uh, Jerusha Dakin. My goodness. Nathan and Jerusha Dakin as they are expecting. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what a blessing and, and what a miracle new life can be. With all the, the buzz and joy and laughter that surrounds our church in this season, I felt it would be fitting to take a look at what it means to live a life that is exceptional. That as a, a mother looks down at her newborn baby, she sees so much more than just the changing of diapers. She sees so much more than just the feeding of milk. In the eyes of a new mother, there is the delight and in seeing these great plans and expectations of what God has stored up in this new life for that baby boy or baby girl. And I was, I was preparing this message, I thought, of what it meant to live an exceptional life. In, in the world, uh, a life of exception is one that defies the ordinary, just the mundane. In fact, it was just this past week that I was scrolling, scrolling through my, uh, my news feed on Facebook, uh, and I saw that there was actually a recent passing of a hockey player. And I don't know how many hockey fans we have here, but even the most seasoned uh, hockey fan may not know this name, but... Maybe one or two of you will know the name Peter Klima. Yeah, we got one over here. Supposedly, he was a Czech forward who who played for the Oilers and helped lead the team to a Stanley Cup in 1990. Okay? So I I decided I'd read an article or two just to find out about this man. And, And a number of comments on the post I saw on Facebook talked about how he was not only a great player, but as the article states, he is perhaps remembered for one great moment scoring the game-winning goal for the Oilers in the longest Stanley Cup final game in league history. So, in fact, that was exactly what was said about him in a press uh, statement by the NHL. The NHL mourns the passing of a Czech legend, Peter Klima, who scored 313 goals across 13 NHL seasons. The NHL said in a statement, Klima helped the Oilers win the 1990 Stanley Cup while scoring a memorable triple overtime goal in game one of the final. Our sympathies are with his family, friends, and many fans. Now, I had never heard of Peter Klima until I had read that article, and, and that may be perhaps the last time I ever hear of him. And in my mind, his legacy will be one pivotal goal in a momentous game for a trophy that is coveted by many that came before him and many who will come after him. And I asked myself, is this a life of an exception? Was this an exceptional life? perhaps as the world would see it. But I doubt many will remember the name Peter Klima. He was a good player, but not exceptional in the minds of many hockey fans, although most have not scored even one goal in the NHL. So and perhaps in, in some way, he is an exception to the normal life. Who He not just scored one uh, NHL goal, but 313, and one that will go down in the history of the minds of Oilers fans. But as I pondered what it meant to be truly exceptional, I thought of one uh, who will be remembered, and what it is they will be remembered for. That, That is what a legacy means, what the summation of their life is. And this is the summation of a man's life. Peter Klima, who scored 313 goals across 13 NHL seasons, Klima helped the Oilers win the 1990 Stanley Cup while scoring a memorable triple overtime winner in game one of the final. That was the summation of a man's life in the eyes of an organization he dedicated his life to playing in. It made me ask, what if Peter Klima never played hockey? His life would have most likely been ordinary, without fanfare or acclaim, you know, like most of us mortals. An unknown face in the crowd. In fact, his name would Probably never be mentioned in a sermon from a pastor halfway, uh, from a country halfway across the globe where he was born in Chechia. What would they have said about him if he was a simple farmer or a bus driver? What is the merit of a man? And is it possible to live a life that is exceptional without the exception of being born prodigiously talented at ice hockey? I say yes, it is possible that we can all live lives of exceptional faith, a life of exceptional trust, and a life of exceptional obedience to God. Now that would be an exceptional life, a life that most people bypass. Here today we have born to us a baby, and the future awaits. We wait with eager anticipation of, of who she will become. And I've spoken before about the expectations that can be laid upon a child, In my Christmas message just last year, I I highlighted the exceptional life that Jesus would come to live and the expectations of the future that awaited him just as he lied as an infant in the manger. And now we await the future of this baby girl. But I assure you, the same can be said of you. We await the future of what God has for us. But you have to ask yourself this question. Do you want your life to be exceptional? But what if I don't have exceptional ability to play the piano, to paint, to write music, or or perform surgery, or discover new technology? Or what if you do? Will that make your life exceptional? What if they didn't write prophecies about my life generations before I was born? As someone who is yet to become a father, I couldn't dream of raising a genius or a prodigy or a generational talent like Peter Klima. But here's the thing. You can't choose to be an exceptional athlete. You can't choose to be an exceptional musician. It requires rare aptitude, ability, talent. But you can choose to have an exceptional faith. Everyone here has a choice. Extraordinary faith in God leads to an exceptional life. It bears no need for aptitude. But at times it requires exceptional fortitude. But by your faith you choose God again and again in spite of the tests of life and the testing of the Lord even an ordinary person like you or me can lead an exceptional life how do I know this to be true well let's take for instance a man just a, a regular man uh, a, a one in a million from a city called Ur just a face in the crowd in this major port town where many before and after him would be forgotten in the history of these grounds in ancient Mesopotamia. A man who faced ordinary challenges like many other people. In fact, this man hoped for a child, an heir, a common concern for many people in that generation. This individual is is common in every way. He goes by the name of Abram. And though every assertion that I've made about this man is that he was ordinary, not of exceptional gifting or talent, we remember him not by the name Abram, but Abraham, the father of the faith. And we remember him simply for making the exceptional choice to have exceptional faith. When you open your Bibles to Genesis, you will be greeted in Genesis 11 of the first mention of this man, Abraham's family history. But for our purposes today, we're going to take a cursory glance at the entire life of a man and see what the summation of an exceptional life looks like. And we're going to go all the way from chapter 12 to chapter 22. So we're going to be going, taking a cursory glance. We're going to look uh, very quickly over a number of different chapters and passages and see what is entrusted to this man, this covenantal promise of God, and follow it until it is revealed The exceptional nature of his faith by the time we reach chapter 22 let's start from chapter 12 starting from verse 1 it says the lord had said to abram go from your country your people and your father's household to the land i will show you i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he sent out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far and as great as the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This passage shows us a lovely promise, an answer to prayers, to all of Abraham's worries and concerns, But there's just one problem. His wife, Sarah, was barren. In order for this promise to be realized, Abraham needed an offspring. But all things are possible through God. All we need is exceptional faith, right? Well, we we turn forward a number of chapters all the way to chapter 15. And some time has passed and some different events have transpired that would lead anyone to question these promises. Abraham is 85 now. He was 75 when he left, already old, uh, too old to bear a son, and now he is 85. Still no children, still no fulfillment, and Abraham is growing worried. Let's read. After this, the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham is waiting and waiting and he's growing older and older. But then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He takes him outside. Try counting the stars, Abraham. So shall your offspring be. He took him outside. Look up at that sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, when faced with hardship, being sent out from his home, going face to face with the Pharaoh in Egypt, fearing that they would take his wife and and kill him, all for the promise of this heir he so greatly desired, how does he respond? Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Exceptional faith. Who here could leave behind their home all that they know for a simple promise who could remain then for 10 years for the promise of a child when they were already 75 at the outset you add on a barren wife being isolated from home and family still no children was this a test though with the passing of time abraham may have started to question it it was indeed still a test from the lord and with every test comes temptation And with every trial comes the feeling that faith alone will not solve it. There must be something more to do. There there must be some way I can ensure God's promises through my own effort. That's what comes in chapter 16. His wife, Sarah. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarah says to Abraham, sleep with Hagar. And Abraham begins to reason in his mind what Sarah has affirmed herself. Perhaps I can have a child. Perhaps I can have children through her and raise a family. At the age of 86, Abraham has a believed heir to his inheritance from God. At 86 unto Abraham in chapter 16, Ishmael is born of his slave, of his uh, bondservant. And so what is this, you say? Pastor Joel, is this exceptional faith? Am I to be like Abraham, impatient and, and taking matters into my own hands? Please note that I reserve the right to tell you that exceptional faith is not flawless faith. For no one is perfect. That is not where the exception of Abraham's faith comes from. This morning, I'm not talking about an unobtainable faith. I'm not talking about a perfect or flawless faith, but one that is exceptional. It is not always the mistakes that we make that prove the exception of our faith, but how we respond to God's grace in those situations and circumstances when we have made error. Our faith is formed in response to God's faithfulness to us first. For we serve a great and merciful God, and so what does he do with Abraham's unrighteousness and unfaithfulness? We turn all the way forward to chapter 17 at age 99 as God reaffirms his covenant to Abraham. Starting from uh, verse 3 or sorry, verse, no, we are going to go from verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, can you imagine still waiting for your, your, your heir? 99. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And in submission, We see Abraham fall before the Lord, recognizing the error of his ways. He falls face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your god and the god of your descendants after you and once again the whole land of canaan where you now reside as a foreigner i will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and i will be their god now abraham at this point has heard him told has heard told to him this this, uh, promise more than once. Naturally, he is frustrated. at hearing all of these many promises, Abraham has not lost his faith. He has not returned home defeated, but perhaps he's beginning to feel almost a little delirious. After 24 years traveling in the deserts and foreign lands to this place of Canaan, in Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell face down, And he laughed to himself, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? The promise of the covenant is once again reaffirmed, but not fulfilled. The test of their faith continues into chapter 18, as Abraham and his wife are visited by three visitors, and the Lord was among them. We start from verse 10. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Hey, the end is on the horizon. That should be hopeful. We have a timeline. We, we've been here for 25 years. We finally have a timeline. We know when the baby's coming. But Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah far past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. I'm assuming this was like many of us when we, we laughed to ourselves, but it was perhaps a little too loud. And the person we're laughing at hears us. And so Sarah was afraid, and so she lied. She said, I didn't laugh. I did not laugh. But God says, yes, you did laugh. Sarah overhears the conversation, and her human response to the absurdity of God's miraculous promise is to laugh to herself. And Yahweh responds, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, just one chapter before, Abraham had trouble believing the very same thing, and he makes unto the Lord a new request. Abraham pleads with the Lord, still unsure of whether or not this promise would ever come to pass. Verse 18, Abraham says to God in chapter 17, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing, my illegitimate son, my, my illegitimate heir. And then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant to his, for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now I want to pause quickly. Before I bring the story of an exceptional life to its climax, I want to highlight quickly that this beautiful thing that the Lord does here something that I can't just glance past. In the midst of this near quarter century testing of Abraham's faith, in the midst of hearing the reaffirmation of God's covenant promise to him, Abraham seems to bring everything to a halt for a moment. Abraham still believes for this covenant promise. When he makes this request for Ishmael, it's not because he's lost faith in that covenant promise. If so, he wouldn't have continued to subject himself to being sequestered in a foreign land but just for a moment, he cries out and he pleads with the Lord. Abraham knows God. He knows he serves a God that is so merciful, so gracious, so loving, so generous, that he makes a request he knows he has no place to make. He begs that God would extend his covenant blessing not just to his numerous descendants, but also to this illeg- illegitimate heir born out of his own faithfulness, faithlessness. Ishmael. And listen to this. God responds in such kindness and mercy, not only granting Abraham's request, but that God would even expand upon his original covenantal promise. He widens this covenant to Abraham even further. God asserts that he was the God of his promise. I will keep my original word. That Sarah will bear an heir even now in her incredibly old age. But God also looks with mercy and favor upon Ishmael. How beautiful. This son born out of faithlessness, and yet it leads God to see his chosen people, the 12 tribes of Israel, descend from Ishmael's lineage. And why do I say this is beautiful? It's symbolic. The imagery from his apparent imperfection, which God first does with uh, Ishmael, he will do again with Israel by redeeming a faithless people. Let me make this beautiful imagery and, and symbolism perfectly clear. Abraham is faithless, and it leads to the birth of an illegitimate heir, Ishmael. But God redeems this faithless act, and furthermore, he blesses Ishmael. And from the line of Ishmael, then God, the one who is born out of faithlessness, Ishmael, comes Israel. Israel the faithless people who then God would use to redeem all of humanity. And in doing so, he blessed you and I today. We see this whole thing come full circle as we serve a God who redeems the unfit and imperfect then and even now. Amen? Now where did we leave off? Right, with with a promise and with laughter. Verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Now why did I go over this again? You see, finally, it would seem that the patient faith would see its fruit. And sure enough, just as we are celebrating the birth of a new baby girl this morning, Abraham and Sarah were able to celebrate the birth of their new baby, this time a boy. As we look ahead into chapter 21, we read of God's promise fulfilled all these very many years later. As the promised Isaac is born to Sarah, and what do they name him by? What is his namesake? They name him Isaac, which means laughter. That Sarah laughed at how miraculous how beautiful, how powerful, and even before she had ever laughed at this this thing, God told them, you will name him by, by this laughter because people will see, it will be comical, my mercy, my grace, my power. The things that I will do, they will baffle. He waited 25 years for Isaac, and Abraham is now 100. He was promised many children, and here he is with two. One illegitimate son and one that was promised, both blessed and covered under the covenant of God. And so is this the end of Abraham's story? Already we have seen an exceptionally, almost stubborn faith from Abraham. We've seen some exceptional miracles work to see him through it all. To finally have been born this heir at the ripe old age of 100 That is truly already an exception to what the average life looks like. And yet the story is not yet finished. As we come to Genesis 22, we know that some time has passed, years in fact. Isaac is now a boy. God has tested Abraham time and time again. And in spite of some lapses in Abraham's judgment, God adores Abraham. He knows he has been faithful through these challenges. But as we all know, having read these stories before, a test, another test is coming. One that would make every test that came before seem incomprehensible. We know the test is coming, but Abraham doesn't. Let me read Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I'm going to stop for a second. If ever there was a dad that loved his son, Abraham was number one. Imagine Father's Day at the Abraham household. Finally, I'm a dad. I waited 100 years for this. And here you are. As a father staring into the eyes of his newborn boy, dreaming and envisioning the great plans and expectations that God had stored up in this baby, And then the boy grows in maturity and stature and is now a young man. But then comes Genesis 22. Notice verse one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Notice that the narrator uh, narrator tells the reader that the, the test is coming. We know it's coming. Abraham doesn't have this same inside information. He doesn't know this is a test. All he ever knows is what the Lord asks of him. Abraham, says God. Here I am, says Abram. Now notice this dialogue. Abraham isn't startled by God calling to him. He's not incredibly formal. Yes, my Lord. No, he says, here I am. They seem to be talking as though there is relationship. They speak like friends. And how do I know this? James 2.23 says this very thing. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. But things go from friendly to testy very quickly, pun intended. As God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice them as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And what do we see in verse 3? There's no laughter, there's no scoffing, there's no questioning, there's no pleading with the Lord, as there once was with Abraham and Sarah. In fact, there's absolutely no indication of disobedience, no protest, no wrestling with God this time. We read verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. No disobedience, no protest, no wrestling with God. There's the packing of a donkey and setting off to go to the land that God would show him, just as he first did at 75 question for you. Has God ever asked you to surrender to him what was most dear to you? Has God ever taken you wildly outside of your comfort zone? Challenged you with something that you believed you couldn't do or face until he brought you through it? Of course he has. And if he hasn't yet, he will. He will subject you to the same test. And can God be trusted Can you place your faith in God? Absolutely, unconditionally, yes. So much so that Abraham was willing to surrender that which he loved most, his only begotten son. Likewise, Jesus went to the cross for you, for which we are so thankful, unexpressibly grateful. But he also asks you and me to take up our cross and follow him. You see, unlike Abraham, God would see his son die on the cross of obedience to the Father. Because, like Ishmael, God loved and desired even broken, unfaithful sinners like you and I. We go to verse three. Early, early the next morning, Abraham got up, no hesitation. He loaded his donkey his two servants, he cut wood. You notice how the narrative describes each step, methodical and deliberate. And so they set out on what? A three-day journey. Why three days? Perhaps it's symbolic of Jesus' death and resurrection, perhaps. But perhaps more so, it's three days to think, to pray to feel the weight of this assignment. And on verse four, on the third day, Abraham looked up. He lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. In other words, he's saying to his servants, you stay here. This part is just for me and Isaac. Notice two things now. Number one, Abraham sees this as an act of worship. And this is consistent with the New Testament. Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is worship. Place yourself on the altar. Surrender to him what God asks of Abraham, he asks of you. Present your body, present your life as a living sacrifice. But secondly, and this is perhaps of most importance, notice what Abraham says. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. He doesn't say, I will come back to you, he says, we will come back to you. Abraham is confident of the two coming back. This is exceptional faith. Do you want to live a life of exceptional faith? God, who made a covenant of blessing, now brings a severe test of obedience. And what is God playing at here? Why does he test us? Why does he give and take away? Why does he desire that Abraham should suffer to prove that he loves God more than his son? What will become abundantly clear is that God in our lives is looking for exceptional faith, people who he can entrust his kingdom to those who do not waver in their faith in spite of trial and tribulation because if there is one thing in this life that is promised, it is trial. It says so in Scripture. And if it is not clear yet, it will be. Verse 6, Abraham places the wood on his son Isaac. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went together. This is getting real, a three-day walk. Now Isaac's carrying the wood for the fire. Pops has got the knife and the fire's already started. There's no hope left for Isaac that, you know, maybe somebody forgot the matches. What was Isaac thinking? He's thinking, we need a lamb. 22.7, Isaac said to his father, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It means that Abraham had not mentioned to Isaac what God had said to him. Only Abraham knew. Now that's a burden to carry. Or is it? The New Testament writers clue us into what is going on here in Abraham's mind in this moment. Let's read Hebrews 11, 17, 19. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is, Isaac, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead they finally reached the place that God had chosen. It's on a mountain, three days of a little walking, a little sleeping under the stars, building an altar to worship together, a little binding of Isaac and rope and laying him on said altar, all in the name of some quality time, a little father and son bonding. Now I joke because as you read this passage, it's easy for us to hear this and see it as dark. This doesn't sound like the God we know. Child sacrifice, it's a a pagan ritual. It is so far from the character of the Lord who is faithful to his promise to Abraham, who brought a son to a barren old woman and the hundred-year-old man who had no heir. And then as he takes up that knife in verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And as I mentioned before, even as this biographical look at the life of an exceptionally faithful man reaches its climax. This section is told, again, oddly methodically. There's no mention of struggle. There's no mention of protest. Not from Abraham, and and perhaps even more strangely, neither from Isaac. Isaac trusts his father, Abraham. And Abraham trusts his father, God. The knife is raised and then, just then, the last moment of intervention. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Let's compare this to verse one. Abraham, Abraham. It's twice this time. Not like the first time when he called to him. This time perhaps even a little bit more startling. Something that should jostle. And how does Abraham reply? The exact same way. No waver, no lack of faith. He's speaking to his friend, he's speaking to his father. Yes, here I am. Is this not exceptional faith? Notice the consistency of Abraham's response to God. Unlike before with Abraham, we don't see any questioning. There's no pleading. There's no falling down with laughter directed at God's promises. Now we see a man of consistency, a man who trusts in the Lord. We see a man who has a proven, tested, true, exceptional faith. Abraham is proof that you can lead an ordinary life with exceptional faith and your life will be extraordinary. Do not lay a hand on that boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. So dramatic, so intense. And yet even Abraham, not knowing this was a test, demonstrated exceptional faith in the face of unparalleled circumstance. Was he willing to obey God? Was his faith in God? Was his faith in God's character? And if so, then why? And much more than why was Abraham willing to, to obey, we must ask, why did God test Abraham in this way? God wants to know if we love him more than anyone or anything. And if we obey him first and foremost. But knowing Abraham, and Abraham knowing God, we remember Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, which says, By faith, Abraham, when when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. When you read Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 to 19, you get a little context that you don't get if you just read Genesis on its own. Abraham's not thinking about the task. He was thinking about the promise of God. He knew the God he served. He knew he served a God who was the God of his promise. And so no matter what would come to pass in this trial He knew his son would be leaving that mountain with him, even if it meant he would have to be resurrecting Isaac. There was never any doubt in Abraham's mind. He had waited 25 years for this boy. God wasn't just about to turn back on his goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness, and certainly not on his promise, not now. Even as Abraham raised the knife, I'm sure his hands would have been shaking with uncertainty of what was going to come to pass. But of one thing, He was not uncertain. Of one thing, he was sure. God is the God of his promise. Abraham, Abraham, yes, here I am. He would have breathed the deepest breath of relief that any man has ever breathed. Resolution. We see that God provides both problem and answer. Both equation and solution. A substitute is provided. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was caught a ram, was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as burnt offering instead of his son. God will provide the lamb just as he was always planning, both for Abraham and for all of humanity. God would provide the sacrificial lamb. Do not lay a hand on that boy, he said. You do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he sees this ram. So Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide my mom used to say that all the time when we'd walk through Costco and she'd find a penny on the ground. Jehovah-Jireh. Oh, good. <laughs> and to this day, it is said, on this mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provided for you on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb. I'm gonna call the worship team up at this time as I close with this. Romans 8.32 Romans He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us things? Will you put your faith in him this morning, throughout this week, throughout your life? Will you live a life of exceptional faith and exceptional obedience to God? Faith for salvation. Faith for that very obedience you will need. Faith to live a life that unto the Lord is recalled by others as exceptional. Abraham passed the test by showing his faith in action. No remarkable talent, no gifting, no aptitude, just simple yet exceptional faith. A choice that each of us have to make. God's great promise to Abraham concludes, as it did the first time he spoke it, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. We see the whole thing come full circle from the moment I began to read to the moment that we see this beautiful story come to its, its conclusion, that same promise when he spoke it. And we see this come to pass not just with Isaac, but through Jesus. Jesus was that offspring. From the line of Abraham would come a son unlike Isaac who would die, a sacrifice that we may live. That through him the gospel of salvation and peace of God is now being preached all throughout the world. Just as explained in Galatians 3.8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. Exceptional life, an exceptional faith requires exceptional obedience. That each of us have a choice. You can live in a life of exceptional faith, and that will be an exceptional life. How, how much greater to lead a life like Abraham than that of a star hockey pl- player or a prodigious musical talent that you would be remembered for generations for the faith that you had in God. And that our, our, we would bless the generations to come to pass. Obedience and surrender. Trust God with everything and in everything. Submit to him. Once in a lifetime, you make that decision. But you also make that decision every day after. Your family, your possessions, your future, your life. That's all God ever asks of you, is absolutely everything. Hey, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. Just want you to know you can find full live stream services on our website, lighthouseniagara.com.